Welcome to Tectonic, a program about our shift to a digital future. Station manager Ken here filling in tonight for Mark Hurst, who will return next week. I'm going to introduce tonight's interview with journalist and author Matt Taibbi, and then I'm going to air it. It takes about 40 minutes, and then hopefully uh, in the last 15 minutes of the hour tonight, we can take some phone calls about the interview or about uh, the plight and the work of Matt Taibbi at 201-209-9368. So tonight, mostly, I'm going to be revisiting a topic from three months ago. I think it was January 2nd, the first show of the year, when I sat in with Mark and uh, we discussed the Twitter files. In case you haven't heard about them, the Twitter files are 19 separate dumps of internal communications from the Twitter corporation. Elon Musk, after purchasing Twitter, invited independent journalists Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberger, and a few others to have a look under Twitter's hood and then to report on it. Musk reportedly placed some conditions on the independent journalists who were invited to do this work. And one of the conditions was that they had to publish their findings on Twitter at least initially. This they all did, which actually made it very difficult to read <laughs> the reporting since they were all divided up into separate tweets. Uh, and then they all put it up on Substack as well since Substack is currently where uh, the more successful independent journalists reside. The internal Twitter communications that comprised the Twitter files, by the way, were not from Elon Musk's era. They were from the era of the people who had preceded Elon Musk, the people who had just fleeced him for $44 billion. And what the Twitter files show, I think, is a great deal of cooperation between the federal government and Twitter to manage the moderation policies of Twitter, to shadow ban people, to ban people, to de-amplify them, uh, to the point that 40% of all government requests to Twitter were honored by Twitter. Uh, what Taibbi's reporting on, on the Twitter file show is that the FBI is the most active federal organization involved in moderating the content on Twitter, but it is, by, it is, uh, it is not alone. It is simply the uh, point organization. Uh, Matt Taibbi, since before and since uh, taking on the Twitter files, has taken on an enormous amount of criticism, especially from the left end of the spectrum. And I've been following the criticism of the Twitter files and the criticism of Taibbi as well, reading everything I can find on it. And I don't find anything that substantial in the criticism of Taibbi's reporting. When he has made mistakes, he's publicly corrected them immediately. Uh, when the Twitter files first started coming out last December, the the party line that the left was um, was using was that it was a big nothing burger. Um, but I think, in fact, it has shown an enormous amount of uh, information about government and social media collusion to to manage the uh, social media landscape. Uh, and we were not aware of this before. We may have suspected it. Some paranoid people may have uh, may have alleged that this was going on, but, but in fact, the Twitter files uncovered proof of it. So I think it was far from the nothing burger that it was originally portrayed to be. Um, another bit of criticism is that Taibbi was doing Elon Musk's bidding, that Elon Musk had an agenda and uh, was using Taibbi and Barry Weiss and company to further his own agenda and what his agenda was, there, he clearly does have an agenda. Uh, there's no question about it in releasing the Twitter files. And what his agenda may have been is a matter of speculation. Um, I personally think that it was simply revenge, pure and simple, on the people who preceded him, who just ripped him off for $44 billion. 
Um, but ultimately, I don't really think it matters what Elon Musk's agenda was uh, because the information that he let out is kind of groundbreaking and lets us know things that we had never actually seen proof of before. And perhaps one of the other reasons that the left uh, hates the Twitter files so much is because it shows leftist organizations in an extremely bad light. If you follow all of the 19 dumps of internal communications from, uh, from the Twitter files, it, it shows some of the major institutions in a very bad light, MSNBC, The New York Times, even Twitter itself, um, come, they all come off very, very badly. The interview that I had recently with Matt Taibbi took place last Tuesday, April 4th. And since then, he had a very big week. He got ambushed on MSNBC last Thursday night on Mehdi Hassan's show. Uh, and Mehdi Hassan pointed out some errors in the Twitter files, which uh, Matt promptly corrected. I think they were fairly minor corrections. And then on Friday, Matt Taibbi announced that he was leaving Twitter altogether. <laughs> and the reason for this was between last Thursday night and, and last Friday morning, Elon Musk decided that Twitter was going to block amplification of any Substack content. So all the journalists who he invited to uh, be his, his reporters for the Twitter files uh, now find themselves unable to gather new subscribers or to get any kind of amplification of their content on Substack because Twitter has uh, once again, out of revenge, blocked all Substack amplification on Twitter, probably because Substack had just announced a new product which was meant to compete with Twitter, a product called Notes. Okay, so I'm going to now air last Tuesday's interview with Matt Taibbi. And uh, when this is over, uh, hopefully we can take some phone calls. Uh, here we go. Matt Taibbi, welcome back to WFMU. Thanks for having me, Ken. Listeners may remember the great program you did with Alex Perrine called The Tarfu Report. And Matt is also a legendary author and journalist in the grand tradition of H.L. Mencken, I.F. Stone, and Hunter S. Thompson. Can I say that? Wow. Yeah, those, that's that's quite an introduction. Yeah. Thank you. Um, he wrote for many years for Rolling Stone magazine uh, and won the National Magazine Award for a series of articles on the 2008 uh, financial meltdown. Author of many books, including Griftopia, Hate Incorporated, The Business Secrets of Drug Dealing. Is that your most recent? Uh, I guess technically, yeah, it probably is. Yes. And that's a novel. Am I right? It, it, it's yeah, it's like a true story that we novelized and I co-wrote it with an anonymous drug dealer. Oh, yeah. With anonymous with an anonymous drug dealer. Oh, very cool. <laughs> yeah, it is very cool, actually. That's uh, my he, favorite book, believe it or not. Oh, really? OK. Yeah, the ones that I've, I've written. I, I think it's um, uh, I really enjoyed that writing that book. And it's uh, it's really fun to read. I think I can't wait to read it. Uh, you recently set out on a new journalistic model on Substack where you have Racket News and uh, you recently unveiled uh, a great new podcast with uh, novelist and critic Walter Kern called America This Week. Uh, before Racket News, you were doing TK News and m one of my favorite things on there was Activism Uncensored. Are you still doing that? Yeah, it's just been with the, the Twitter files stuff which I'm sure you're going to get into, um, you know, everything has been kind of put on hold in the last, um, you know, four or five months uh, to complete this project, which is, uh, which might be wrapping up. I'm not sure, but, um, but it's been very difficult to do anything else since then. Yeah. Well, what was uh, activism uncensored or what are the videos are still up? So can you describe yeah, it for listeners? And we're going to go back to that. And there, there's a, um, a videographer named Ford Fisher, who I ran into uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I, I did a, a piece about him for a, a series called Meet the Censored, which is about people who had been taken off the Internet for various reasons. Ford is a um, very experienced uh, shooter of protest footage, and he's a, uh, a person who um, goes around the country, doesn't matter you know, whether it's a left or a right 
based protest. He shoots the the events. He interviews the people, and then he sells the footage often to um, to you know big channels like CNN, um, NBC, etc. Uh, but what we do with his series is rather than taking bits and pieces of um, the events, we just let him run the cameras longer and uh, without a lot of editing. Uh, selectively, you might see a few questions here and there, but the idea is to give people a kind of um, less edited look at what the various protest uh, events are about and what they're saying and... and uh, and try to deviate a little bit from the script of how we cover this stuff. Yeah, it's really unusual um, to, to be able to watch a, uh, a video of a protest by the new Black Panthers and not have it reduced to sound bites and actually hear them have a, a good discussion about why they're there and what they stand for. Um, it's incredibly uh, unusual to find yeah, something he, like that. He, he has a good relationship also with um a lot of these folks he kind of knows the mechanics of protests he's learned it over the years and um and so he he has a good rapport with uh people on both the left and the right so yeah the new black planters or the boogaloo boys and sometimes they get together that's another thing that's interesting um is that he films these scenes where protesters uh of various stripes who you'd think of um you know, impossible to align, they do get together and he films that and, you know, shows the interchanges. And uh, it, I think it's really interesting stuff. You know, he's, he's also a very skilled editor. So it's, um, it, it feels like it's long, it feels like it's shorter than it is when you're watching uh, this footage. It's really interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, so let's attack the uh, Twitter files monster now. Um, <laughs> Do you have a, a thumbnail description for people who are brand new to it of what the Twitter files are? Sure. So when Elon Musk, um, you know, the owner of Tesla uh, and SpaceX, when he acquired Twitter, um, he, I guess, decided that in the interests of trying to restore some credibility and transparency to the platform uh, for people who believed it had become politicized or, you know, whatever was going on. He decided he wanted to open up um, the internal communications of the company to uh, the public. So he invited me and then subsequently uh, some other independent journalists to come in and um, kind of just look through huge batches of files and write whatever we wanted to about them. And these were uh, these were internal Slack channels or emails or tweets or what were these? There were actually four different categories of um, uh, of documents. Their emails were one of them. Slacks were another. Um, there's something called the PV2 viewer, which is uh, it's sort of like a a face page for um, what what your Twitter account looks like internally to the company. And, and it's a bunch of th stuff. Mostly it's emails, though. We found that emails are the most substantive and most um, uh, had the had the biggest bang for the buck in terms of providing stories that we could write about. Uh, so, you know, we, we went in there. He very conspicuously didn't invite legacy media organizations in. And um, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to speculate as to his reasons, but I think it's been very interesting that he's done that. Uh, and yeah, yeah we, they they took it very very personally too, that they were not invited. They did, um, and, and I think that was very conspicuous in the in the reaction to these stories. Um, you know, the first one we did was about the decision um, internally at Twitter to uh, hold the New York Post's Hunter Biden story. This it was actually it was a joint decision, but it, it was really my idea. Um, to start with that, uh, because I thought you know, the big question I wanted to answer was, does the FBI talk to these companies and give them recommendations about what to um, censor and what not to censor? And I thought this was if, if it was going to be visible anywhere, this is this would be where we would see it. And as it turned out, in that first batch of files, we didn't see it. Um, but there were some other interesting stuff there, too. So, uh, and how many how many uh, Twitter files have you have been dropped now on Twitter? 
I think overall it's 19 uh-huh. uh, or 20. Uh, it's hard to say because a couple we've had a couple of like little supplemental drops here and there. So if you probably counted them all, but separately it's 25. But there's like 19 big ones. And so. and how many of those were ones that you investigated and that you published? Uh, probably over half of them. Mm-hmm. I would say. I think I, I think I probably did 10 and 11, 12, something along those lines. I have yeah. to go back and look. But, I, th- yeah. I think I followed it closely up to maybe the 11th one. And then I have to admit that I, I then I then dropped off. Um, so I guess right. most, most of my questions are going to be about the first half of the Twitter files. <laughs> um, one yeah. thing one thing that's really fascinating is that, of course, before all before Twitter files dropped, Twitter pre-Elon always denied that it engaged in what's called shadow banning, uh, which is banning people without them even realizing that they've been banned. Um, Now, you not only found that shadow banning um, does happen, but you found all sorts of internal documents that talked about how Twitter would moderate content. Um, Can you talk about uh, about the various tools that you uncovered? Sure. Uh, technically, the, 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 this is what we call the visibility filtering um, uh, thread. This was this, actually the second big Twitter thread. And it was actually Barry Weiss's story, not mm-hmm. mine, although I worked on it with her a little bit. Um, what happened was we, we asked some of the people at Twitter about um, shadow banning, and they just told us flat out, that yes, we do it, we we call it visibility filtering. And then they took us kind of on a tour through all the tools and they are incredibly elaborate. The company has the ability basically to dial your presence all the way down to zero um, and then all, they can ramp it up as much as they want as well. Uh, the ag- offensive tools or the amplification tools are actually a little bit more mysterious than the other ones, but the, they can certainly do things like, for instance, you you can call up a page and it will have these little colored notations on it that will say things like trends blacklist or search blacklist. Um, and that could mean anything from you can't be searched at all to you can only be searched by people who follow you to the people who follow you can't search you. I mean, there's uh, probably 40 or 50 gradations and we got pictures of them and put them up there. Wow. <laughs> so that was, yeah, that was sort of the end of that. There's no more discussion about whether or not they're shadow banning. There is absolutely shadow banning. And then what else, what else do they do besides shadow ban? Well, the, the big thing that we found was in the first week or so, we started to see these emails that said things like, uh, flagged by the FBI, or this is flagged by DHS, and then they would forward a whole Excel spreadsheet full of accounts. Now, at first, a lot of these were things that were, I think you would call obvious misinformation or disinformation, like telling people to vote the day after an election. Um, but as things got complicated, uh, progressed, we, we learned that there's actually a lot of content that they get into. Um, especially with foreign countries. The, there is a, a very organized, um, elaborate bureaucracy involving not just Twitter, but really all the major tech companies. They meet regularly. They have a thing they call the industry meeting with the DHS and the FBI. Uh, they talk about different uh, modes of communication. There's a standard setup for the FBI and the DHS to pass moderation requests to the company, uh, which are then processed. Uh, by the trust and safety uh, people within Twitter. So this is a, you know, we we thought at most we were going to see a few emails here and there from the FBI saying, hey, don't do this, don't do that, or, or be advised of this. Um, instead, it's it's a regular, constant system that was so overwhelming that people were giving, within Twitter, were sort of giving each other digital high fives when they got done uh, processing FBI requests. So, um, yeah, it's it's a pretty elaborate thing. And it was uh, the FBI. You mentioned the Department of Homeland Security. And it, it seemed like an endless batch of agencies. Yes. And so that, the, that even went, went all the way down to local police departments. Um, yes. That, that could have a say. Even went to, I believe, the National Football League. Uh, the the <laughs> NFL, is. they sit on the DHS um, advisory committee. So they... They sort of distantly have a role in all this, okay. but the, 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 the triumvirate of key agencies 
is the DHS, the FBI, and then the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which is sort of uh, represents the interests of all the intelligence agencies. Now, the structure they have is that DHS and CISA, CISA, which is the Cybersecurity Infrastructure uh, and Security Agency, um, which is a sub-department of DHS, they take in all the requests from anybody within the 50 states, and that can be like the Secretary of State's office in the state of Connecticut, it can be a police department in Minneapolis, it can be the governor of California, it can be anywhere within the within the territorial United States, DHS processes those requests, forwards them to Twitter. If, if it's from anywhere else, from the federal government, it passes through what the FBI itself called the belly button of the FBI, uh, of the U.S. government, which is the FBI, uh, goes through a, a single teleporter uh, port for Twitter, and they get requests from everyone, from HHS uh, to CDC to CIA to NSA to um, you know to a whole range of federal agencies, and we're seeing all of it. You know, so we we published a whole bunch of those lists. And and, and from what you found, how long has this been going on? So the formal system was set up. Um, concretely before uh, the 2020 election. Got it. And uh, another amazing thing that, that you pointed out in the Twitter files is that they're not just going after uh, large actors and large players. They're just going after like Joe Sixpack in some oh, cases. Yeah. yeah, that's actually the thing that I found most interesting is that it's not they're not just going after significant accounts or what tweet, uh, Twitter calls uh, VITs or very important tweeters. Uh, there are a lot of requests involving people with eight followers, 10 followers, 15 <laughs> followers. In fact, there were there were conversations back and forth between twi senior Twitter executives saying, hey, this is hardly a, you know, a gigantic foreign threat if the guy's only got 12 followers you know they're they're they actually saying stuff like that so yeah that's that's very interesting that they it, it's done at a micro level it's not just a macro level and one sense i got in in following uh, that particular twitter file release i think that went into all the government and corporate partnerships was that there was it actually seemed like there was a real ad hoc nature to how it started it, it actually did not seem like the federal government, you know, came down from on high and and organized it. It seemed to just kind of fall together. Is that is that accurate? That I the, think that's the, an accurate description. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of stuff that was heard, um, and it, it's a it's a very complicated narrative that really begins with Trump's election, and after that, uh, the Senate um, Intelligence Committee, in particular. In, in tandem with the House Intelligence Committee, um, they went. They approached Twitter and essentially demanded that Twitter open its doors to tighter comp content moderation procedures to obviate foreign threats. And this began a process by which there was um, communication back and forth between the companies and agencies like the FBI. Um, at first, it was very halting, and the company put out resistance. And then, by I would say 2019, it was it was really a formal partnership where it was hard to distinguish senior Twitter executives from, say, the you know, the top FBI agent in the um, San Francisco San Francisco field office. They were they were basically colleagues at that point. Yeah, and despite this, I think um, some of the criticism of the Twitter files that I've seen is uh, that there's people on the left, I guess, uh, re rejecting the idea that this is government censorship. Uh, they, they, they make the argument that the government never really demanded Twitter to do these things, that Twitter did them willingly um, out, of some kind oh, of, right. out of some kind of civic duty or something like that. Can you address that? Yes, and, and what they're hanging their hats on there is a technicality um, in all of these requests, no matter how many of them there are, there's there's 
in basically every one of them a little disclaimer that says you know for your consideration only you know for you to act at your sole discretion um we have forwarded these accounts which you may decide have violated your terms of service etc cetera, etc cetera. uh so yes technically they're not demanding it they're not saying you have to take this down it's kind of a wink wink nudge nudge kind of a thing and the the downside for twitter was made abundantly clear to them in 2017 that if they didn't open their doors to government that there was going there were going to be more congressional investigations more negative press and probably more regulation and taxation and this is this stuff came out in emails that we found um, between twitter executives talking about their uh, discussions with the senate intel committee for instance so it's Yes, technically, legally, it's up to Twitter whether or not um, they take this or that account down. But internally, they issued a guidance basically saying that outwardly, we're going to say that this is done at our sole discretion. Inwardly, if the government tells us that some this or that account is a foreign malign threat actor, um, if the U.S. intelligence community says that, they actually say that, um, if the U.S. intelligence community deems it, um, we are going to act. So it's, yeah, there, there's a technicality there, but I think if you look at it, um, you know, from an, uh, from an unobjective, from, from, from an objective point of view, it's pretty obvious what you're looking at. So you had these, uh, you had this consortium of agencies uh, collaborating with uh, Twitter um, to, to moderate content for all sorts of reasons. And they were also looking or trying to work with um, other sites as well, going all the way down to Pinterest. Yeah, yeah, they, they have this, again, they have this thing called the industry meeting. Um, and we found the minutes for these meetings. And there would be a mass email sent out to 50 or 60 destinations. It would include companies like the obvious ones like Facebook, Google, YouTube, um, you know, Google slash YouTube, Facebook slash Instagram. Uh, but then there's also like Pinterest and Wikipedia and a whole long list of other smaller uh, organizations. And they would go to these meetings. And what's fascinating about that is you would you would see the minutes and, you know, the first entry would be FBI briefing. And then the second one would be OGA briefing. Uh, and OGA stands for other government agencies, which is a um, a euphemism for the CIA, usually. Uh, so that I thought was fascinating. Um, we just published that. You can infer from it what you will. Uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty intense. It's very organized. And um, it, it's it's incredible how far reaching these communications are. There's nobody out of the the cartel. That's what's so fascinating about it. And that's why when musk bought twitter there was such an outcry because essentially it meant that one of these players was pulling out and that was the problem right twitter pulling out at least partially from you know at least on some level they were no longer like a full actor in right. this like i think they still i mean i don't know i haven't looked at, at contemporary twitter as much as i've looked at you know old twitter um but I think a lot of the consternation was that they were no longer going to be the same kind of participant in these in these discussions that they were before. And you, of course, found um, a great deal of uh, paper trail of, of governmental agencies putting pressure on Twitter to moderate their content. Did you find that with other platforms? Did you find any evidence of uh, other governmental agencies asking Google to moderate content or anything like that? Yeah, we did. Um, so, for instance, we found um, a communication from an agency that I, that we think is the CIA. It's not. Um, it's not certain. We know it came through the Foreign Influence Task Force portal, which is technically administered by the FBI, but the report itself looks like it, it comes from the CIA, according to a bunch of CIA agents that I talked to. And it's a recommendation to uh, YouTube that it take down a series of um, videos for quote unquote um, anti-Ukraine attitudes. So, uh, you know, I, some, some of the accounts you were still able to see what the videos were uh, in the past, we found them. 
Um, but that's a pretty what's fascinating about that is is that it wasn't an assertion of misinformation or disinformation. It was more an assertion that about the origins of the, the content. Uh, we think that this is content that came from the Russian government or is in sympathy with the Russian government. Therefore, you should take it down. Um, so, yeah, we found a bunch of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about Hamilton 68, if you would. Yeah, so Hamilton 68 was a, a crazy one. We found, uh, found it sort of by accident. I was looking for something else and then suddenly stumbled on this big discussion within the company about a think tank called Hamilton 68, which is a, um, was created by a thing called the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which if you look on their board, it's got people like Bill Kristol, the former Homeland Security Chief Mike Chertoff is in there, John Podesta uh, is in there, um, Mike Morrell, who's the former acting head of the CIA. Um, they created this thing called the Hamilton 68 dashboard, which purported to track 600 accounts uh, linked to quote-unquote Russian influence activities. And Twitter um, got suspicious of that um, that dashboard because they were getting so many news stories that were saying, oh, look, um, Russian accounts are trying to hype up this, that, this or that hashtag, like hashtag fire McMaster or hashtag release the memo. Twitter didn't believe that their methodology was sound, so the trust and safety chief, Yoel Roth, reverse engineered the list by looking at their um, data requests, and it, he found that um, it wasn't 600 Russian accounts. It was 600 accounts, most of which were sort of ordinary Americans, Canadians, and British who, who just happened to have views that may have coincided with some that... Uh, some Russian attitudes or, or some attitudes that the Russians um, would have liked to have hype as propaganda. And, you know, I contacted a lot of these people. They're just ordinary Americans. So Hamilton 68 was a source for hundreds of news stories in America over the course of the last three or four years. And um, it turned out all to be based on kind of a fraud. Wow. And uh, were there a lot of ordinary people on, on this list as well? On yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it was, there was the editor-in-chief of Consortium was on there, um, Joe Loria. So it's not just uh, conservatives. There were, there were a number of people who I would classify as kind of leftists on the list. Um, there was a Stalin-supporting resident um, of Bulgaria uh, on, on the list. There was a... A, a media organization, a little, a smaller one called the Serious Report. Um, there was a, a, there were a whole bunch of people who I would say were like septuagenarian Trump supporters from places like Florida and Texas, who had small, kind of low impact accounts with less than five thousand followers. And I talked to these people on the phone. Um, what they were doing is they were just making kind of an affinity analysis, like which accounts do these accounts follow or which news stories did they retweet? And that was how they determined which ones were quote unquote Russia aligned or not. Oh, <laughs> I see. It was crazy. Yeah. Now you, uh, you lived in Russia for quite some time. I did mm -hmm. 10 years, 11 years. And I wanted to ask you about something that you, you mentioned on your, your podcast um, uh, with Walter Kern, which was you, you referred to uh, old, old American propaganda that was put out by the Voice of America. Um, it was put out by an agency called the U.S. Information Agency. And, and you were sort of contrasting uh, what you used to hear when you lived in Russia on VOA um, as opposed to what you've been uncovering with the Twitter files. Could you speak to that? Yeah. So Voice of America, um, when I first got I studied in Russia when it was still the Soviet Union uh, in 1989, 1990. And that, that's where I learned Russian. And, um, you know, Voice of America, Radio Liberty, Radio for Europe, those were very popular among Russians back then. I think the, the appeal was pretty obvious to an ordinary Russian citizen. They would go outside and they would see things like, you know, there's no, you can't buy socks anywhere or the, you know, the price of sausage was four times what it was a month ago and there would be nothing in there local newspapers about it, but they could turn on Voice of America or Radio Liberty and actually get an explanation about what was going on um, in their own countries. 
And that was very, very important, I think, to um, the effort to win the Cold War, or at least win the hearts and minds of Russian citizens um, and help make pave the way for the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, but what they're doing now is the the kind of successor agencies to uh, USIA, which was shut down in the late 90s. Um, they've now created something called the Global Engagement Center, which is very, very aggressive in it, this its attempts to control information by means of censorship and these subterranean reports that it gives to uh, companies like Twitter. But it does very, very little public facing um, journalism or research. So it has a totally opposite philosophy uh, as opposed to what it used to do, <laughs> which is they would try to be open uh, about what they were doing and make the, their arguments publicly. Yeah, so the old philosophy of USIA was that the US government would respond to criticism by making a public argument. Now what they're trying to do is address those criticisms by censoring or de-amplifying them privately um, and quietly by appealing to companies like Twitter. It's sort of an opposite philosophy. You've talked recently about um, the fact that even a little bit of sunlight um, coming on to all this stuff um, has caused some degree of embarrassment um, and backtracking. Um, and, and there's been even some retitling of agencies. Um, what's been going on with that? So particularly within the Department of Homeland Security, uh, if you remember last year, they announced the creation of something called the D Disinformation Governance Board, which immediately struck a lot of people in this country as being Orwellian. There, were, there was a lot of um, consternation because the would-be head of that agency, Nina Jankowitz. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was the she had sung this Mary Poppins song on on Twitter, and she was a bit loopy. She, and that she, went viral, and it was just horrible. Yeah, it was a disaster. Yeah, so they, had, they had to shut that down within three weeks. But they didn't actually end the idea. They just sort of moved it into this thing called the MDM committee, which is the Mis Misinformation, Disinformation, and Malinformation Committee. Uh, they gave it a new name. They assigned all this, a lot of the same people to sit on that committee. Uh, but then they just the, over the course of the last couple of months, it looks like they've shut that down. They've taken that committee off their website. Um, and it's now unclear whether they've eliminated the idea entirely or they've just eliminated any public record of it. It's hard to say. But certainly it's interesting because the, the government so rarely makes any changes to anything. Um, but this looks like an actual response to public um, discontent, which is, you know, I think notable. And uh, of the that MDM acronym, it's uh, misinformation, disinformation and malinformation. Will you explain malinformation? Yeah, malinformation is just a euphemism for something that's true but inconvenient. <laughs> so uh, we found this. I think we, we found a, a great example of this in um, the work of a group called the Virality Project, which was created by Stanford University. They were sort of a central processing um, uh, operation that uh, took in uh, social media posts from seven different platforms and helped them, uh, gave them recommendations about what was or was not um, misinformation about COVID. Now, they sent Twitter an internal communication saying that you should consider as standard misinformation on your platform, even true stories of, sorry, stories of true vaccine side effects or true stories that may promote hesitancy. So in other words, a person gets the shot and dies. Um, we want you to shut that down because we don't want you to, that people will circulate that and say the vaccine isn't safe or somebody gets myocarditis and we don't want that circulating even though that happened, which is very, very dangerous. I understand the thought process behind it, but if you, if you, look under the surface of it, it's a direct um, strike at the whole idea of what journalism is about. So yeah, I think that's very damn. The, the whole concept of malinformation is extremely dangerous, I think. So in the course of uh, releasing the Twitter files and doing all this tremendous work that you've been doing, um, you were called to testify 
before Congress mm-hmm. yeah. a couple of yeah. weeks ago. And uh, how did that go? It was surreal. I mean, I, I, look, I'll be honest, I'm a lifetime, let's put it, non-Republican. I have never voted for a Republican in my life. So yeah, and you a were little... a Bernie Sanders fan. I, I and, and still am, yeah. you know? Uh, and so when I was contacted by Jim Jordan, who's the head of the Judiciary Committee in the House, and asked to testify about the Twitter files, you know, at first I, I hesitated, but you know, not really, because like this interview, like any interview, I'm going to tell people what I found. And you know, if I don't know the answer to something, I'll just say that. Um, but I thought it was important information. I thought it was important to try to uh, tell the public about what we found. And especially since the, the conventional press hadn't really touched a lot of the material. So they had us testify, and I, I think it was a disaster for the Democrats because rather than engage with the material or make an argument as to why people shouldn't look at it, they just really went after me and the other witness, Michael Schellenberger, on a personal level uh, for the entire hearing. It was, it was really bizarre. Um, at the end of it, we were kind of shaking our heads. Um, yeah, they made, you, they made you out like a serial killer or something. It was it was like, crazy. Uh, yeah. That you were like the most date. What did they say? The most dangerous man in America, or I can't remember some kind of hyperbole like that. Yeah, the 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 ranking members said that we were a direct threat. These witnesses are a direct threat to those who oppose them. Um, you know, and and that's scary stuff. I mean, I'm I'm not going to lie to you. I'm normally pretty blasé about the whole idea of journalists taking risks. I mean, I've lived in countries where journalists get shot and that kind of thing. So I, I don't worry about it in America. We, that doesn't happen to us. But the government, you know, somebody from the government saying that you're a direct threat is, is a little unnerving. Then we find out that the FTC was investigating us. And um, so that whole hearing was, was a little bit uh, freaky. The federal, <laughs> wait, the federal Trade Commission's investigating you? Yeah, we, had, we found out that day or I think it was the day before that the FTC had been sending letters to Twitter asking them about who was looking at the Twitter files, asking them to provide the names of any other journalists who might be working on that, on the story. Yeah. So they're asking about the FTC was asking about which journalists were working on the story and, you know, who else besides me and Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger. And the reason that's a problem is because, uh, the relationship of a journalist and their sources, you know, has to be that we have to have the right to do that in private. Like the government's not allowed to um, be asking about who is talking to whom. I don't think I think that's totally um, illegitimate. And it's kind of chill. So there's a chilling effect there. Right. Um, and you, especially because if you're doing a story and you're talking to a source you want to be able to guarantee them that, that your conversation is going to be private, that there's not going to be any consequence to that. Um, and so for them to be asking about that, I thought was was a little bit uh, crazy, um, especially and, considering and, what happened afterwards. And you found out about the uh, FTC investigation the same day that you testified before Congress? Yeah, it was either the day of or, or the day before because the... the um, uh, weaponization of government subcommittee did a report and they sent the report to us and we saw the emails um, from the FTC to Twitter asking about the Twitter files reporters. So it was either, it was either the day of or the, or the night before something. And, like that. and wasn't that the exact same time that you had some IRS agents also show up at your door? Yeah. So that was another crazy thing. Um, I don't want to make too big of a deal about this, but I got home from Washington that night uh after testifying and when i got home i found out that an irs agent had come to my house uh during the hearing and left a note on my door a very strange note that told me to call not right away but in four days on monday (laughs) so that i would have four days to think about whatever the problem was uh so that that actually did happen and um oh and that would have been yesterday it would have been yesterday. Did you call them uh, on, on the appointed day? Um, when they told me I, to call in four days, I was like, screw that. <laughs> I called them right away because uh, I wanted to find out what the problem was. But they didn't get back to me until the following Monday. So um, so then I found out that it was 
it was a very strange technicality having to do with um, con- my electronic returns had been rejected out of concerns for identity theft from 2018 and then last year. And I had never heard about the 2018 issue before. We It had been electronically accepted. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Well, that's weird. It was very weird, yeah. Um, still, I thought it was probably nothing. I thought it was a coincidence. I don't owe them any money. I, I, as far as I knew, I don't have a problem at all. Um, but then, you know, when I saw the thing about 2018, when I found out what, what it was about, I thought, well, that's a little weird. And I told the committee, I said, you know, I don't know what this is, but you should probably be aware that maybe there's some issue with your witnesses being looked at. Um, and then they, you know, they made the decision to make it public, which um, has blown up far more than I thought it would. Let's put it that way. Wow. We're talking to Matt Taibbi, journalist and author and uh, architect of the Twitter files. Matt, thanks so much for spending all this time with us today. Oh, thank you, Ken. And Dan. people can uh, follow the, your new news agency, The Racket. Is it at taibbi.substack.com? Yep, or uh, racket.news is even easier. Oh, so. great. Racket.news, which is great, as is uh, your podcast, America with, uh, This Week with Walter Kern. Great, a great author, very, very funny man. We we uh, we spend a lot of time making sort of inside jokes that we think are funny, but I think it, it, the show, is, show ends up being kind of cool I think. no it's a great listen every week so thanks thanks a lot for hanging out with us today matt appreciate it ken thanks thanks so much take care that was the interview i conducted with journalist and author matt taibbi i talked to him uh last tuesday And then, as he said at the end there, it was uh, only after that interview last Tuesday that he had a very eventful week. Uh, And that after being visited at his home by the uh, Internal Revenue Service and testifying before Congress. Uh, But after last Tuesday's interview, he had an extremely embarrassing, contentious interview on MSNBC. And then following that, uh, irony of all ironies, (laughs) Elon Musk decided to ban all Substack content from uh, being able to receive any amplification on Twitter. Uh, This after after Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss and other Substack journalists um, did such a great job, I think, reporting the Twitter files, which, yes, had some errors in them, as some people on the chat board have pointed out. Um, I myself am not a Twitter user, have not been a Twitter user since um, 2015, really. Um, I didn't like the direction Twitter was taking even then, which is why I stopped. Um, So, yeah, no fan of Twitter am I, no fan of Elon Musk by any stretch of the imagination. But I've been fascinated by the Twitter file story, not only because of the content uh, that's coming through, and it's just a shame that it had to be published on on Twitter. That's when Elon Musk, one of his demands, uh, which made it very, very difficult to follow and to find. And uh, the whole thing has been uh, it's it's been an amazing story, but incredibly difficult to follow it all to the point that I, I only followed it, I think, for the first 11 or 12 installments, and there have been 19 installments. If you have any thoughts, and I know I know there's people out there with thoughts, I feel like I've been uh, arguing on the chat board the entire time the interview was airing. So if anybody would like to call, the phone number is 201-209-9368. That's the phone number. We are live uh, for the next eight or nine minutes. And then Dave Mandel comes in with the wonderful new prog rock show. It's complicated because there's no time for prog rock like right now. And of course, the phones are dead. Um, Definitely a lot of another aspect of um, the Twitter files that I that that made it such an interesting story for me. Um, besides seeing the real mechanics, the real mechanics of how 
uh, Twitter dealt with moderation, dealt with the issue of moderation, uh, which was extremely dishonest. Uh, they don't simply ban you. Oh, no, no. They're, they're way, way beyond. <laughs> if they just banned you and said, hey, you broke our terms of service, you're banned. In my opinion, that would be OK. Uh, no, they do sort of this visibility filtering where they can dial you up. They can dial the power that you have on Twitter up. They can dial you down. They can label your tweet. There's all sorts of things. And this being discovered after they had denied that they did anything like this. All right, we have some people calling up uh, ready to argue. I hope, I hope. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, I, I knew I'd have to call in. Listen, just an overview of what's going on. Here I'm thinking, never before in the history of humanity or civilization have human beings had such opportunity to twiddle their thumbs. I say twiddle because it's like Twitter, tweeting, twiddling. Mm -hmm. People had to, I mean, you had to get to work. You had to plant crops. You had to get to work. You had to build things. And never has there been so much time for people to waste their time. Yeah. Any, you know, anyone who was, so the preoccupation with Twitter, that kind of preoccupation would mean your death in the past. You know what I'm saying? Wolves will come, you know what I mean? There were too many dangers in the world. We have too much idle time. I agree with that. And uh, I agree with Mark Hurst's uh, general uh, general thesis that time spent on social media is time wasted. So I, uh, the extent of my social media use is actually the WFMU chat boards. That's the only thing I do like that. Oh, and, yeah. And email. Um, but yeah, I quit. I quit all social media around around 2015, just in time. Well, you listen. Know, but, thanks. But thanks for your call. We only have FTU five. FTU feels intimate. It really feels intimate, even though it's remote. It, there's something about a shared community and and esprit de corps. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's nice that we have a small community. We're not going after growth at all costs or anything like that. I think that's part of having a successful online community is that it shouldn't get too big. Yeah, it shouldn't it get it, if it gets it can reach across the ocean, but stay intimate. If it gets too big, it becomes completely unmanageable. Well, anyway, thanks for your call. Sure thing. OK, bye bye. Phone number here is 201-209-9368. Um, just aired, I guess what we might describe as a fairly controversial uh, conversation with Matt Taibbi. I don't think there was anything controversial that we talked about, but I think just the very act of inviting Matt Taibbi on the air, on the radio station where he once had a show and where he's been a guest multiple times, just the act of inviting him on the air um, is controversial. Going to go to the phones. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, Ian and Ken. Great interview with Matt there. Really Thanks. appreciate you. Thanks. Matt. Who's this? Uh, this is Zachary. Oh, hey, Zach. How you doing? Hey, doing well. How are you? Good. Hey, no, I, I think with all of it, you know, especially with the, the recent interviews, it, it's obviously struck a chord, uh, making the, the public aware of that kind of cooperation and coordination between the government. And I really see it as a, a red herring talking about the free speech component. Where oh yeah, you know, Twitter has every right to do whatever they want. They want to cooperate with any party. That's, oh yeah, you know, Musk. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think Musk uh, talking about free speech uh, is a joke. It's quite clear that he's never even really thought about it, and he's never even really thought about issues surrounding moderation. Right. It, it, it's it's uh, yeah, and and there's well, you talked I, about it too, moderating the, the WFMU community. I know the previous caller had mentioned something with that. You said you spend quite a bit of time, right? Daily, yeah, I do spend through. I do spend a lot of time moderating it. Yeah, and uh, I definitely and so, think I definitely think it's better to just you know have terms of service that spell it out. I know nobody reads them, but I don't know what else to do. Um, and then if somebody repeatedly breaks the terms of service, then you know you you ban them, and then they're notified right. that they're banned. They're told that they're right. banned. You know, I, I, classic I, internet. You know, we were all on message boards and stuff in the 90s. Right. That's just how it was. You pissed the, the moderators off, and, yeah, you got 
either temporarily banned or permanent banned. Yeah, and I th- and I think also that another community. I think that what we saw, you know, with the peak under the hood at Twitter with the Twitter files, I'm sure it goes on at every single large social media site. You know, oh, it has to. Yeah. So we're just seeing what happened at one, and we're only seeing what happened at Twitter during a certain period of time. I mean, it's really not, you know, it's just a peak, but it's the only peak we've ever really gotten at any of these mm-hmm. things, you know, and, and yet and yet yeah. it's still being described as, eh, oh, that's a nothing burger, you know. Right. Really... I think people will reflect back and they'll, they'll see the, the tremendous overreach in that regard i mean do we really want the government talking to media and saying hey we don't like you doing this please make it stop right yeah and and i also i really like the uh comparison that matt taibbi made between the way propaganda used to be handled by the u.s Mm -hmm. by the u.s government with voice of with for example with the voice of america radio service um which aired american propaganda overseas but it was very upfront like here's right. here's the US government view on this news story and uh and it's sort of in many ways it is kind of the opposite of what we're seeing now uh where oh, it, yeah. where any kind of divergent viewpoint is simply you know clamped down and just you know dishonestly throttled and disappeared right yeah if you can make people think they're still reaching people well at the same time knowing no one's hearing them. You know, it's the same thing if you're engaged at civics at any level. Yeah. You know, anything. If, like if you've ever been into a public meeting and read a, a journalist's report, like a small-town newspaper report of that meeting, sometimes they don't even cover the interesting topics. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, oh I, I've, I've read enough newspaper articles about WFMU to know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> to know how many mistakes... You know, how many mistakes are, are in every single newspaper article and every single every single online article, I'm sure, contains massive right. amounts of mistakes. Well, anyway, Zachary, thanks for calling. Hey. We, yeah, we, thanks, Ken. Appreciate Yeah, thanks. And uh, I'm sorry to all the other people who called, um, who tried to call, who could not get on. But we are out of time. Uh, it is time for It's Complicated, our new prog rock show with Dave Mandel. This has been Station Manager Ken filling in for Mark Hurst on Tectonic. And Mark will return next week. Thanks for listening and hanging out, everybody. just about that time you're tuned to listen and support WFMU in East Orange WMFU in Mount Hope in New York City in Rockland County 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org Ken owes me because he forgot to do the legal ID but you're tuned to It's Complicated my name is Dave Mandel I'm the host I'm here every Monday between the hours of 7 and 8 welcome
I just need to find my pen. We're going to start today's show with a couple tracks. Um, first, we're going to hear something from Steve Howe. Steve Howe put out a solo record in, uh, in 1975. Yes, the band Yes did what dozens of groups were doing at the time. Who else did this? Kiss did this. The Moody Blues did this. I'm trying to remember. I'm sure there are others. That is, members of the band's uh, <laughs> spoiled, pampered, rich rock stars decided to all put out solo albums. Every member of the band put out a solo album. And several, lots of bands, I think, did this at the time. One of those bands was Yes. So we're going to hear a track from the album that Steve Howe released at the time. It's called, it was called Beginnings. And uh, again, I think I said it was released in 1975. Roger Dean cover. Roger Dean, of course, was the was the guy responsible for the most famous Yes albums, the sort of trippy art, and featured a few members of Yes, the, the Steve Howe album, that is, featured a few members of Yes. Bill Bruford, see if I can... if. I can recollect Bill Bruford, I believe, is on is on a few tracks in this album, the original drummer from Yes, of course. Patrick Moraz, who was the keyboard player. I think Alan White is on here, drummer from Yes. That's enough of that. So I'm going to play a track from, from that album, Steve Howe Beginnings, and then I will segue into something completely different, namely a piece of Italian Prague. I'm going to play something from a group called Banco del Mutuo, Socorso, which means Mutual Aid Bank, is what the, the translation of that band's name. And I'm going to play a track from from that group from 1976, I think. And that group, whose name I'm not going to say again, I, I said it once, was was one of the one of the really big, one of the biggest. There were many, many Italian Prague bands, and it, it, Prague was was huge in Ital in in Italy. And, but they were one of the biggest, I would I would say, and I believe they're still putting out records. Certainly, they were putting out records, you know, up till a few years ago, and maybe still today. So those are the two things we're going to hear to start off this evening's show, and then we'll be back. Thank you. 